Jesus, it is in you alone that we have faith. It is in you alone that we know that we have our hope. It is in you alone that we stand. And we know that you are on the march to set us free and ask that you would help us hear what you have to say through my words, through what we think in our minds and in our hearts in these next few minutes to set us free in your name. Amen. Well, last week we started a sermon series called Optimum Performance about how we can be like finely tuned race cars who are just operating in peak condition, just thriving in life. And we talked about how the Ten Commandments can get us there. It is important to notice that it is immediately after God has delivered the Israelites from slavery that he gives them the Ten Commandments. Not to wreck all their fun, but as a way of saying, I've set you free, now here are ten ways to stay free, ten ways that you can thrive. And after God says that, in the next verse, the Bible says, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. Right. (laughs) Just like when my kids say, yeah, Dad, I'll do it, right? That is just not how we work. Someone, a couple weeks ago, someone sent me this picture. I don't know if you can see it because the sun is on it, but that sign says, do not climb, play on and around the pipe. (laughs) Doesn't seem to be working, does it? That's That's just who we are. You know, we are just rebellious. But God gives the Ten Commandments to set us free and help us thrive. And that is very true of the first two commandments that I want to talk about today. You shall not have any other gods other than me, and you shall not bow down to graven images. Now the issue here in both of these is idolatry, and there's two kinds of idolatry I want to touch on today. And the first is this, following false gods. Now for the Israelites, it was foreign gods like Molech or Baal or something like that. I'm just going to go out on a limb guessing that's probably not your issue. That you're probably not bowing down to a statue of Molech in your living room. And and if you are, you should stop, not only because it's a sin, but because it's weird. (laughs) That's not what we do, but we do follow other gods. Here's a definition. An idol is anything we rely on other than God to make us feel secure, give us a sense of identity, make us happy. Anything we pursue more than God is an idol. So by that definition, we've got a lot of idols that we worship, don't we? Let me list just a few real quick. Money, a lot of folks think it's going to save them. Physical appearance, a lot of people worship this one and spend all kinds of time and money trying to look a certain way. I mean, at the gym I go to, you can frequently see these grown men standing in front of the mirror, flexing their muscles, you know, looking at their profile. I mean, it's embarrassing, especially when someone who goes to this church sees me doing it. true. (laughs) Work and success can be an idol. Our offices for some people are temples where people will sacrifice the best of their time, talent, and energy serving the God called success and achievement. Materialism. If I just get one more thing. Remember a few months ago I told you that I had found the one thing that would make me happy for life? My iPhone. And you didn't believe me. But you were wrong. I was happy for months until Apple did an evil thing. They introduced the iPad. 
right? And then a friend of mine had an iPad, and he showed it to me, and I held it in my hand, and I beheld the iPad's glory. <laughs> and I did not know that I wanted until I saw that he had, and it had to be mine. It's called an idol, but I am resisting. Sex, having the perfect family, education, comfort, all of those things can be idols. And if I miss yours, there's a blank at the end. Fill in your favorite idol du jour. We are equal opportunity in this place, right? We're going to cover it everybody. Anything we look to to give us meaning, security, happiness, other than God is an idol. And if you want to know what your idol is, ask yourself some questions. What occupies my daydreams the most? What do I most fear losing? What do I put most of my time, energy, and money toward? What do I pursue more than God? That's your idol, or idols. And I got them too. And the problem with them is they put us back in slavery. They put us into bondage in a couple of ways. First, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. So if we worship money, we'll become greedy. If we worship sex, we'll become lustful. If we worship physical appearance, we'll become anxious about aging or get eating disorders or all kinds of things. We become what we worship. Our idols enslave us. Second, idols let us down. Money. Lots of folks in our country think money is going to make them feel secure. How's that working? Or take success. Now, it's okay to achieve. It is fine to achieve as long as that is sort of the natural outflow of pursuing something we love and as long as it leaves time for faith, family, and friends. But if we are always striving to achieve in order to impress other people, successes are idle and it'll disappoint you. Because as you know, you're only as good as your last sale, your last deal, or your last sermon. So I've been told. <laughs> this summer, all three of our children were on swim team. And at one, uh, at one event, my seven-year-old got a trophy, you know, just one of those little plastic trophies that they give kids when they win something. And what I love about Lucy is, is she is the most secure person I know. She does not feel the need to impress anybody. Her attitude is, I am Lucy, therefore I am loved, right? And if you don't love me, that's your issue, not mine. It's really refreshing. Did not get it from me, right? So we're driving home, and Lucy just pipes up from the back seat and says, what's the point of trophies anyway? That's a profound question. Really, think about it, right? At which point, my older daughter very seriously said, it's to represent all of your achievements in plastic. Also <laughs> profound. <laughs> Success is sort of a plastic trophy. It'll just let you down. It doesn't really satisfy. And then the third way our idols harm us is they drive our behavior. I learned a long time ago, I may have shared this with you in the past, I learned a long time ago, the reason I am impatient in traffic is because I have way too many things to do. And the reason I have that is I'm trying to please absolutely everyone and make them like me so I can feel good about myself. Underneath that is a little sin called pride. And that's one of my idols. And I turn to it sometimes more than God to make me feel good and comfortable. And the result is I get mad, I get frustrated, I'm too busy. Sometimes I neglect my family, I neglect close friends, trying to make sure that everybody likes me, trying to please that idol. We become what we worship, our idols let us down, our idols drive us, and the result is stress, fear, and broken relationships. Good news is there's a way out. But I'm not going to tell you about it just yet because I want to touch on there's one other kind of idolatry that I want to talk about. And this one is also very prevalent, but more subtle. Idolatry is following false gods, yes, 
but it is also having a false image of the real God. Having a false understanding of what the real God is really like. And this is at the heart of the second commandment. Do not bow down to graven images. Now, when it comes to this one, most of us breathe a sigh of relief, right? Commandment two, we're sort of like, oh, phew, this is one I can do, right? I mean, I may botch the other nine commandments, but I do not bow down to graven images. So I've got at least one that I do. I am one for ten, better record than the Mariners. <laughs> right? I'm just mm, not so fast, right? There's more to this commandment than just not bowing down to images. The issue here is our image of God. Is it the real God revealed in Scripture, or is it the God we want him to be? See, the idols that folks made in the Old Testament, that was just their way of reducing God down to fit their cultural notions of what a God should be and do. Squeezing God into their culture. Now, we don't do that with physical images, but we do it with mental images. Second commandment means any sentiment that begins, I'd like to think of God as, should be suspect. Well, what is God revealed like in Scripture? And we often do this, myself included. You know, we all take bits and pieces of the Bible we like and ignore those pesky parts that, hmm, are disturbing, right? I love that promise God gives me about giving me a future and a hope. That is so awesome, God. You rock, God. Oh, but that stuff about giving money, you know, the Bible is an old book and it doesn't apply to today's culture. I love the God who forgives me, but the God who says to forgive others, he doesn't understand my situation's a little different here. The second commandment says do not reduce God down to what fits our mental or cultural images of what we think he should be like or want him to be like. As Mark Twain said, in the beginning God made man in his own image and ever since man's been trying to return the favor. <laughs> a writer named Anne Lamott says, a good way to know if you have made up God, if you have a made up God or you're following the God of scripture is, is if your God hates all the same people you hate, you probably made him up. <laughs> I'd add a few others. Just to challenge us, if your God votes the way you vote all the time, you probably made him up. Jesus is neither Republican nor Democrat. He's mad at them both, right? So he, he's not in, not, he doesn't just rubber stamp our politics. And third, if your God is always mad at you, if your picture is God is, God is just furious with you, that probably has more to do with a, a father or a mother that was domineering or an angry preacher you had as a kid than the real God who loves you and is for you. But likewise, if your God always approves of everything you do and never for your own sake corrects you, well, that's not the real God either. And I see this a lot in my role here as well as in my life. Here is a conversation I have had 18 million times. I've counted. Someone's mad at someone else, sibling, coworker, friend, someone in the church. And at some point I'll say, you know, I, this hurts. You have been wronged, man. This, I get that this hurts. But, you know, Jesus would call you to forgive and reconcile for your own sake. Otherwise the anger is going to eat you alive. And then they will say, you know, they'll, they'll almost always say one of the following things. Yeah, I don't think all that stuff about forgiveness really applies today. It was different back then. Or, yeah, you know, the Bible can be interpreted a lot of different ways. Well, yeah, there are some passages that can go a couple of different ways, but Jesus is real clear on the whole forgiveness thing. Or sometimes people will say, yeah, I know what Jesus says, but, you know, my situation, it would not be fair for me to forgive that person. They really harmed me, and I think Jesus would want me to be fair and just. That is breaking the second commandment, as well as a couple others. And I do it too. We all do it. 
And again, result is bondage. Our unforgiveness eats us up alive. If we say, oh, those commands about saving sex for marriage, so old-fashioned, I don't think God cares, we can end up with hurts and scars, and we diminish the power of sex because we unite bodies and we don't unite whole lives. Our false notions of God put us back in slavery. And they do one other thing. They reduce our experience of God's power because we put them in this little mental box. I heard a guy who grew up in the Bronx say that for years he would not become a Christian because every picture he saw of Jesus showed him as this meek, mild, kind of gentle guy. And he thought, this guy wouldn't last five minutes in my neighborhood. Well, that left out the strong Jesus who says to the religious leaders of his day, you brood of vipers. Our idolatry and false images of God confine us and reduce our experience of his power. So how do we get free? How do we stay free? How do we bust out of the idol trap? Three things. The first, expose the false gods for what they really are, tyrants. Look at the ways your idol is putting you in bondage. The stress that addiction to success is causing you. The damage that lust is causing. The endless cycle of desire that materialism brings. Look at the bondage your idol puts you in. It will be less appealing. Second, there is someone that we can turn to to give us a real image of God, to give us a true image of God. Who am I talking about? You're in a church. Take a guess. Jesus. There you go. Oh, that was a little slow. All right. Jesus. Always the right answer in the church. Jesus gives us the real image of God. Because you see, the pro there's a huge problem if we have our image of God. But if we have no image of God, how are we going to worship him in a personal way and relate to him? Solution is Jesus. He is our image of God. He shows us what God is really like. Get to know him. And one of the best ways to do that is through scripture. So let me give you a challenge. Between now and Christmas, read all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to get to know Jesus better. Just You could read just five or ten minutes a day. You'd finish all four by Christmas. And as you do that, as you read, pray this prayer. Lord, what does this passage show me about what you're really like? So that you can get to know Jesus. All four Gospels by Christmas. Let me put that out there. And I know it sounds a little maybe hard, but let me encourage you. You can do this. I'll prove it to you. About a year ago, when my oldest was nine, she decided to read through the Bible. Which she did in about nine months after I had excerpted huge tracts of the boring bits. Okay, But she did read a lot of the Bible when she was nine. So I'm just asking you to read four Gospels. Okay? You don't want to be beaten by a nine-year-old girl, do you? <laughs> Come on, right? You could do and don't be saying, well, she's a pastor's kid. Don't be playing the pastor's kid card. No, no, no. Pastor's kids are just like every other kid, only more so, right? Think of the stories I've told you in the past, okay? We do not have the perfect family, and I've got two other kids, and they haven't read the Bible. Four, we're working on it, okay? But we're not the perfect family. Four Gospels by Christmas, I dare you, I double dare you, to paraphrase Clint Eastwood, do you have the guts to do it? Well, do you, punk? <laughs> Get to know Jesus through Scripture. He is the image of God, and he shows us that God is strong enough to conquer death, that God is compassionate enough to love the leper and the outcast, that God is rebel enough to chastise the religious leaders of his day, and that he cares enough about you and he cares enough about me to set us free through his commands. Get to know Jesus. And also in prayer and in worship. And repeat this prayer over and over. Jesus, you are my peace, not this other thing. Jesus, you are my savior, not this other idol. Jesus, you are my joy, not this other thing. 
expose the idols, get to know Jesus, and finally, surrender. Do what God says to do. He made us. He knows how we operate. Just like the makers of my car who tell me to put oil in the engine or it will stall, he made us, he knows how we best operate. Give some of your money away because it will free you. You will see God provide for you which will free you from fear of money, money fears, about finances. Forgive folks which frees you from anger. Do what he says to do. It will set you free. Because who knows better what is best for us, the God of Scripture who made us or the gods that we make up or the God that we invent? And here's the question of this sermon. Are you going to shape the truth or are you going to let the truth shape you? Pastor John Ortberg talks about how he grew up with this pressing need to be seen as a leader. It was just this idol in his life. And he said even in high school, he would do things like run for student body president because he would always hear adults say, well, adult leaders say, well, back when I was in high school, even then I was student body president. So he'd, he'd try really hard to make up really good, catchy slogans and run, but he always lost. Because as he says, he was more introverted than he wanted to admit to anyone or let anyone see. He said it was like trying to be somebody I wasn't, trying to grab something I just couldn't. And it would make me defensive, unhappy, driven, and phony. That's what our idols do. Well, to make matters worse, his wife, who's named Nancy, is a super leader. He says she'd run for office in high school, and every time she'd win. And then he jokes, and she didn't even have good slogans. Like one of her slogans was, don't be fancy, vote for Nancy. She won on that. Is that fair? No, right? So... About 14 years ago, John went through a six-month depression, as he describes, like he'd never experienced before. And one day, he says he was sitting in his basement, talking to God, feeling sad, and finally he just blurted out, okay, God, I will give up my need to be a leader. I will let it go. And he said as soon as those words were out, he felt this volcano of emotion, like he'd never experienced before. Not just a tear or two, but sort of these wrenching sobs. And he said, I, all I knew in that moment was I'd been holding on to something that was just messing me up. And there was no life in it and there was no joy in it. And I said, God, I will let go of this. It's doing me no good. I don't know what that means, but I will trust you and I will follow you and I'll do the best with whatever you give me. You drive. I'm done. Well, that was 14 years ago. And now John says, looking back, it is so clear that all of that need was nothing more than pride and ego and junk that was just wrecking his life. And John says, of course, he's still got more surrendering to do, but what he's discovered is that there is peace and there is joy and there is life on the other side of obedience. For seven years after that, John served as a teaching pastor in his church in Chicago, which was not a major leadership role in that church, uh, at least the way he was thinking of leader. He taught courses, but he wasn't in charge of anything. But God used it. I know many people who sat in those courses, and their lives were transformed by John's teaching. And John found life and joy and freedom in it. Then seven years ago, my former church called him to be their senior pastor. So now he is in a position of leadership, but only after he had started to surrender his idol and had lived in that state of surrender for seven years, saying, Jesus, this need to be a leader does not define me. You do. And I know that John is a much better leader for having surrendered that idol. He's more humble. He knows that he needs to lean on other people's gifts. And he knows that on the other side of letting go and obeying is freedom and life and joy. So what are your idols? 
What do you turn to other than God that is con- causing you bondage? And what false images of God are you carrying around in your mind? Because here's the deal. God loves you, and he is for you. And he says, I am a jealous God. And what that means is he loves you so much he cannot stand to see you in the arms of those other gods because they don't do you any good. So will you read the four Gospels to get to know the real God? And will you surrender at least one or two things in your life? I don't know what it is. Will you say, Lord, I want to give this thing to you? And will you work on giving that and letting go of it and saying, I'm going to put you first, God, not this other thing? Because when we do what the one who makes us, made us, tells us, will make us thrive, as it turns out, we thrive. I heard a man tell a story about how he's always suffered from motion sickness. Driving, flying, anything, just terrible sickness. But when his two sons were younger, they loved the merry-go-round. So not a great combo, right? So, but he would go on it, he'd take them on it, and every time he would feel like he was going to throw up. But, you know, this was a test of manhood, so he kept doing it. Until one day, the operator recognized all the symptoms and said, why don't you ride where I ride? And then he took him to the center of the merry-go-round and said, here in the center, you don't get sick. Here in the center, it's stable. Because it's here in the center, this is where all the power is. This is where all the power comes from. Because of our idolatry and the ways we make God in our own image, we mess around on the periphery of God's will. Obey here or there, maybe when we feel like it, maybe when it's convenient. I know I do that. But you know what? We just get sick when we do that. But if we move to the center of God's will, to the center of God's heart, to the center of who he really is, not who we think he should be, and when we do what he says to do, we can stand on his power and not fall down. Or get sick either, both of which are good news. So Jesus, we give this to you. Right now we say, here's my idol, Lord. And I cast it down at your feet, knowing that this idol is doing me no good. And that, Jesus, you're the only one that can set me free. Holy Spirit, help us to live in your freedom. Show us the ways our idols bring bondage. And give us power to follow you alone. In your name, Jesus. Amen.